This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, on the 31st of January 2020, Brexit took place. From that date, Britain no longer was a member of the European Union. The key period that Copper fastened that decision was a referendum held in 2016 as to whether Britain should stay in Europe or leave by a margin of, well, a small margin, really. 48% of British people wanted to stay. 52% wanted to leave. It was a populist campaign that the Leave people ran. It was really headed by Boris Johnson, and it was a defining moment for Britain. Many people said at the time that it would take decades to really understand all of the consequences of this dramatic departure from the world's biggest trading zone. And we're joined now by Chris Johns. Chris, of course, former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland now, a respected commentator, and nobody is better placed to tell us of the effects of Brexit on Britain. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. This was a monumental decision. The margin was really quite tight, wasn't it? You know, a percentage point here or there. But the impression many people have is that Brexit has been very bad for Britain. Do you share that? Yes, in a, in a number of key respects. It starts with my specialty, the economics. And it's very important to get that right and to debate it in the correct way because of the way in which the Brexit debate is conducted in the UK. You don't want to fall into the rabbit holes that some, that, and traps that are laid for you. The, it's been bad for the economy. It's not been catastrophic for the economy. And this is where some diehard Remainers do fall into the trap laid for them by the other side, by the Brexit ultras, is that those ultras do want to contest the post-Brexit battles on the economics because, as I say, the economy, it's been bad, but it's not been catastrophic. And, it's, it's, and it sometimes is described in those terms as, as being really awful. Um, the best estimate, the best clean, um, unencumbered estimate, uh, from, not from a think tank paid for by dodgy people on either side of the debate, the official budget, the, official, the Office for Budget Responsibility, the independent government watchdog, has estimated that by the end of this decade, it will cost the British economy 4% of GDP. That's a lot. It's a lot of tax revenues you don't have to spend on the NHS. 
it's a it's a lot of things that you really don't want but it's not unmanageable it's not the economic end of the world it's worse than it needs to be because if you had an economy that was growing over the last few years at a few percent every year a, le- a straight hit of 4% is still painful but it isn't a catastrophe but the economy hasn't grown since the financial crisis it will take so it probably feels worse than it would otherwise have done and then you still you then get into the debate with the brexit people who then say ah oh, well but even that isn't as bad as you think it is because all of that hit to growth the reason why we're not growing the reason why the obr thinks and um kemi badenoch for example one of the candidates for prime minister recently has qu- explicitly questioned the independence or the accuracy of the OBR's estimates and so this is what they do and they say well it's not brexit that's causing the economy to have the problems that it's very visibly got it was originally the pandemic and now it's ukraine and inflation and interest rates and it's got nothing to do with brexit so you immediately start that debate by saying okay here's some numbers produced by an independent body and they say no it's something else it's over here and the debate disappears down the rabbit hole of talking yes. about numbers and what causes what and all the rest of it and it's important not to do that i think it's important to say that 99% of decent economists there are a few out there think that brexit has been bad and the only difference amongst decent economists is just the exact enumeration of how bad it it has, it has been it's either bad or very bad so leave it at that and then it's the non-economic stuff that's important it's the degrading of the public sphere it's the, the 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 discourse that we have it's the normalization of political lying yeah. it's the fantasy world that british politics now lives in i think all of these are legacies of brexit i think there are personal legacies that i feel for brexit in that it's it's become for example around the dinner table or in the pub a taboo subject yeah. with um, keir starmer who seems to believe that even if he uses the word brexit in public he'll lose the next election it's quite yes. extraordinary and so it is with ordinary people we don't talk about it anymore because it has become a taboo subject it it has polluted everything on that question of the fear of denouncing brexit is obvious but it was fear was it not that led to the brexit referendum it was the fear of the tory party led by david cameron that nigel farage would outflank them because he had had a spectacular result in the european the elections for the european parliament and cameron decided that he would grasp the nettle have a referendum and put an end to the leave movement or at least put an end to talk that he was afraid and the tories were afraid to go to the country on this issue and fear has been a constant and as you just referred to it there the, the fear that Keir Starmer has of stirring up that hornet's nest again but really farage frightened the tories into having the referendum in the first place would you agree with that mostly true yes it was also the case that the um right wing of his own party had been causing trouble really ever since britain joined the eu back in 1973 and particularly since the early 1990s when something called the maastricht process one of the great treaty revisions which yes. has caused trouble in ireland because the, the 
the island has rejected one or two referenda on treaty revisions in the past. Uh, the, the, the Maastricht process, as it was called, that led directly, to, for example, to the creation of the euro and the ever closer thing that is the European Union, um, really got the right wing of the Conservative Party going again. But they had been smoldering ever since Britain joined the EU in the early 1970s, that they haven't gone away. Um, in any way, shape, or form. And they've been sniping away at various prime ministers, going all the way back to John Major in the early 1990s, who referred to them as his bastards, you might yes. you might recall. And they've always been there. Ken Clark, the ex-Chancellor of the Exchequer um, from, from years ago, referred to them as uh, the Tory party crocodiles, because he, he likened it to paddling can, a canoe up a river, being pursued by crocodiles, and you have a, a stock of red meat in the canoe, which you periodically fling towards the crocodiles to keep them <laughs> at bay. But you know that you're going to run out of red meat one day, yeah. and they are going to come for you. Yes. And so it proved with Cameron. He thought that this was red meat for his backbenchers and Farage to, uh, that, would that would cause them to back off, and they didn't. They consumed the red meat, and they then consumed him. And so Ken Clark was absolutely right with his metaphor. And they're still there. They're still causing trouble. And like a lot of um, rabid creatures that have been fed in this way, all they ever want is more. And it becomes irrational. It becomes crazy. It becomes fantastic. But they're still there. They're still causing trouble. Now, if you take, what do I mean by that? If you think about Rishi Sunak, who is a Brexiteer through yes. and through, who've, who has uh, believed in Brexit forever, as far as we can tell, who yeah. campaigned to leave during the referendum. The, this right-wing, looney-tune wing of the Conservative Party really don't like him. And yes. it is said in Westminster at the moment that there is, believe it or not, the circus keeps going, a, a, a faction that want him out. Yes. And the reason why they want him out is that the latest expression of Brexit, the thing that is uh, being spoken about, is that he's not Brexity enough. Yes. And by contrast, Liz Truss, who was a Remainer, campaigned for Remain, voted to Remain, who became a late convert, like so many Tory MPs, ostensibly because of a change of heart, a Damascene conversion. But let's face it, it was because of career reasons that they changed their minds. It was a purely transactional thing. She was deemed by this right wing of the Tory party to be very Brexity. And that word captures a whole host of attributes that isn't really got anything to do with Brexit anymore. It's all to do with being uh, on this side of um, uh, turning the UK into Singapore on Thames, to doing quasi-quateng type budgets, and to be very anti-immigration. All that stuff that they, that they seem to want. Sunak is deemed now to be not on the side of the angels um, and they regret the fact that Liz Truss had to be squeezed out, and now they're going to have a go at Sunak. It's incredible stuff, but that's the Breg that's the legacy. You asked me about that. That's the legacy of Brexit. It's led to these fantastic yes. circus-like uh, positions that people take and behaviours that they display. And it's also true, arguably, that the European Research Group, a group of raw right-wingers, backbenchers mostly, effectively control the Tory party. And you could see that in the recent leadership elections. You can see it every day of the week, really. And it's ugly. I mean, they, for example, drafted 
the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is now going through the Lords, having passed through the Commons, designed to destroy the Good Friday Agreement and as a weapon of war against the European Union to damage the single market, for example, which is critical and the number one item on the European Union's agenda is protecting the single market. So they're after the European Union all the time. But how can we explain, Chris, the rise through the ranks of somebody like Liz Truss, somebody like Suella Breverman, somebody like Sir Gavin Williamson, who has been sacked again from cabinet this week, from the cabinet office, which was a non-job, but he was sacked twice before by Theresa May when he was Minister for Defence for leaking, and even Johnson had to sack him. This is a man who really should not be in public office. They own the Tory party now, do they not? For a number of reasons. I mean, Gavin Williamson now has the distinction of being sacked, as you say, by three different prime ministers. His Wikipedia yes. entry is going to be really interesting <laughs> looking forward. Where, how, what he's got on Johnson to uh, persuaded Johnson to give him the knighthood is, is, a, is an interesting matter of speculation, um, but I won't go there. The, the, Sunak's got a number, a whole host of problems. He's got a, an entry full of them, but from the point view of his strategic positioning within the Conservative Party, there are two main problems. The first one is that all of the talent, all of the old school Tories, the one nation Tories, the pragmatic Tories, the people who are interested in the hard grind and graft of government, of getting things done, were all purged by Johnson. And so the, the, the sheer numbers of ERG members and ERG types grew proportionately on the back benches. There are just now so many of them. So Sunak is not just protecting his flank. He's, in a sense, protecting his, his back against these people who are lined up, as I say earlier on, as I said earlier on, to, to have a go. The second thing is, is that Sunak, for a number of reasons, um, is quite weak. Um, he first of all, he's not a very experienced politician. He hasn't been in politics for very yeah. long. His rise to number ten has been meteoric. Yes. You might recall that the reason why he ended up as chancellor because was because yes. of a row inspired by Dominic Cummings with the then chancellor Sajid Javid yes. uh, over the sacking and uh, of um, advisors and the attempted coup to take over the treasury by. Dominic Cummings, effectively. And then all of a sudden, Sunak, and very few people had heard of, was Chancellor. And then all of a sudden, he was campaigning to be be Prime Minister. So it's quite a meteoric rise of of whether or not he's got any talents or attributes for the role. He is very inexperienced as a politician. And I I think that's a problem for him, because that inexperience has been very evident with some of the choices that he's made um, for his front bench, and indeed his middle bench, if you like, with the U-turns. Uh, he was not going to go to COP27, then he went. Um, the, the decisions over appointing people like Gavin, Gavin Williamson. So uh, from an inexperienced point of view, and I also suspect he, on the face of it at least, as you have said, he is quite weak yes. and hasn't 
the backbone, or at least hasn't displayed the backbone necessary to actually make a stand against the ERG and ERG types. It may well be that because there are just so many of them, that he is overwhelmed and outnumbered, and that he might take the view that I'd like to stand up to them, but if I do, I'm dead. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The... Position the Tory party is in now. I mean, they are a laughing stock. Liz Truss, as prime minister, was deeply unconvincing. But when she ran head to head with Rishi Sunak, maybe this explains his nervousness. She beat the hell out of him. And yet, she's prime minister. She appoints Kwasi Kwarteng, who comes out with this crazed budget, which this morning he denies being the author of and points the finger at the former prime minister of 44 days, Liz Truss, and said that he warned her not to do it. <laughs> this is kind of, they are the laughingstock of the world, really. Yes, if you, if you read the foreign media, if you, if you look at what foreign newspapers are saying, other political commentators, laughingstock is, is the right way to describe that, which is, which is tragic, because that, that's not traditionally the way in which Britain is regarded overseas. But it's, it's not just the fact that people are laughing at us is a concern, although it, that is a big one. One of the key problems he faces, of course, is that nobody trusts us anymore. Nobody trusts the government. And that's Boris Johnson's legacy, in turn, yes. another one of those legacies of Brexit is that we have things to negotiate, we have things to sign with other people coming up. And what they say, in public at least, is that um, they're not that interested in these negotiations unless they really have to take place, which is what is happening with the Northern Ireland Protocol. There's not much interest, for instance, in that famous trade deal with the United States. That's just completely moved off the agenda because the United States isn't remotely interested in signing 
with with the UK because it's a laughing stock, because it can't be trusted, because of Northern Ireland, because the US has got better things to do with its time as a result. So these are the very real consequences of the Westminster Circus. The role of the British media in all of this, Chris, was it as significant as I believe it was? There are right-wing newspapers of all kinds dominating in the UK. And of course, the sun would be obvious, the telegraph, the mail. They set the weather, don't they? They make the weather in which this Tory party and all politicians have to work. Yes. And uh, I wonder sometimes just how much of an influence they can bring to bear, because as you know, their circulation numbers have collapsed. But the the Daily Mail online, for example, is arguably far more important an influencer than the, the Daily Mail newspaper, although obviously very, very related. And the, the it, it gets more extreme the, the longer time goes on. Again, one of the legacies of Brexit has been the, the most extraordinary behavior of the press and the, their belief that uh, political lying is normal, political lying is even to be applauded these days, if and extraordinary as, as that sounds. It is no longer regarded as taboo to be caught out as a liar. You just shrug your shoulders, apologize for any hurt that you might have caused, and if you're out of office, you're back within a week. Can and- I ask you about one particular Brexit lie that was spectacular and which has rarely been mentioned in my hearing anyway? They had the bus, the Brexit bus, which Boris Johnson traveled on and of course Cummings was the author of many of the tactics in that but it said 350 million a week the amount we're giving to Brussels which will be transferred to save the National Health Service that was rather large lie it was and clearly that money has not arrived in any way, shape or form. And as part of the overall... The health service is falling apart because you may have to wait in an ambulance outside a hospital. And there were new statistics published by the Office for National Statistics only yesterday on waiting times in things like ambulances and hospitals, the health system in generally, and the numbers... And 7.1 million people on a waiting list. The There is a guy called Andy Haldane who had the exalted job of being chief economist of the Bank of England until relatively recently. And only today he is reported to have said for the first time in its history, there is now a link, direct link between the dire state of the National Health Service and the state of the British economy. And the dire state of the National Health Service is holding the economy back, is contributing to its recession. And we also had data today to say that in the most recent quarter, the UK economy shrank. It's the first stage of the actual recession that the Bank of England has stated quite explicitly that we're in. So this very exalted chap, ex-chief economist of the Bank of England, is saying that the state of the National Health Service is causing the health of the British workforce to be negatively impacted to such an extent that it is having a measurable impact on the British economy. Isn't that an extraordinary state of affairs? Yes, it is. And one of the other targets for this right-wing cabal is, and I'm quote, experts. It was Michael Gove, actually, who said famously during the Brexit campaign, we're sick of listening to experts. 
And that is a very loaded and rather reminiscent of Liz Truss being sick of treasury orthodoxy. In other words, anybody who knows what they're talking about has studied the subjects they're supposed to be experts on and offers an opinion is a pain. She referred to the treasury as indulging in abacus economics. And uh, which is quite a remarkable statement. Can you explain abacus economics to me? I'm sure all our listeners know what it is. Abacus economics means when somebody comes to you and say you need to stop spending over here because the thing over there called your bank balance has shrunk to the point where you no longer have the money. <laughs> it's people who explain arithmetic and adding up and things like budget constraints, and explaining to you that there are, in life, not just in economics, but in life, there are trade-offs, that if you do something over there, it has an impact on the other side of the equation. It explains to you the realities of life. It explains to you that decisions can sometimes be hard. Decisions can sometimes cost you in ways that are predictable and in ways that are unpredictable. It explains trade-offs. And one of the many legacies of Brexit, I keep coming back to that word, those words, legacies of Brexit, is partly via Gove's comments deriding the value of experts, is that we no longer, at least the body politic, no longer believes in trade-offs. It believes in fantasy that you can have, in Johnson's words, cakeism, have your cake and eat it. He started yeah. it with that phrase when he, asked, when he was asked, what do you want from Brexit? And he said, I want my cake and I want to be able to eat it. It's that expression of sheer belief that can override reality and that uh, facts, figures, data, real-life trade-offs don't matter. It's not that they don't matter even. It's that these people seem to believe that they don't exist. So that when yes. the Treasury says you can't do this because you haven't got the money, you just say, oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And that's what led to that trust budget. Um, and uh, th there are so many different examples of this. But the, the, of course, the, the deriding of experts is, is very clever because for a while, you can then pull off all sorts of conjuring tricks about pretending to be able to do this, that, and the other, promising the earth, but ultimately you will be caught out. But reality will bite you sooner or later, and it bit them um, with the trust budget. Now, a final question, Chris, about the lifespan of this Tory party in its present state. For example, they've appointed someone as Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. I saw him interviewed the other day. He had promised an election for December 15th. If the Assembly wasn't back up and running, he threatened an election, I suppose you'd say. He had to back off that. It was crystal clear, watching the interview, that he's no idea what's going on in Northern Ireland at all. He hasn't a clue, and the guy who was there before him hadn't a clue either. There are serious consequences, in other words, for our country here if we don't get some resolution in this row, which is essentially between Europe and Britain, but Ireland and Northern Ireland and peace on our island is collateral damage. And the way these goons operate, they wouldn't even know what collateral damage is. No. And as I've said to you many times, I mean, very few people in Britain think much, think about Northern Ireland very much, and they, they know 
things they don't know very much about Northern Ireland. That's just a fact of political yes. political life. There, are, there there seem to be two types of of cabinet minister these days. Um, there's the, the Heaton Harris guy that doesn't seem to know much about anything, and then you've got people like Sunak himself, Jeremy Hunt, and others who have this public school, usually Eton, um, Oxford, PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics degrees, and also incredibly wealthy. Um, Jeremy Hunt is a multimillionaire yes. in his own right, and Sunak is, is we think, a near-billionaire, the richest, if not one of the uh, one of the richest prime ministers in, in British history. And they're, so their connections to real people, the, the crisis of the NHS, the uh, cost-of-living crisis that ordinary people are feeling, we do wonder about how connected they are. So they either appear to be this particular from this particular political class of Eton and Oxford, or these non-entities that you have um, currently running the Northern Ireland show. So it, it, it's not a good look. It's a recipe for further chaos. The Northern Ireland thing is particularly interesting for Sunak because he's caught in a pincer movement here. He knows that if he appeases the ERG and implements the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. What it means for Ireland, I don't know what he, how much he cares about Ireland. I fear that it isn't very much. But what he would, of course, care about would be what that would mean for the British economy and its relationship, further deterioration in its trading relationship with Europe, culminating maybe in a full-blown trade war. But certainly, the um, lesson from the mini-budget or the maxi-budget of quasi Kwarteng is that if you start do, if you just merely announce stupid things. You can have an instant financial crisis. You don't actually have to implement your dopey policies. So if he announces the, something in, that uh, has to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that, say, threatens a year or two down the road the possibility of a full-blown trade war with the European Union, you can bet your bottom dollar that today you're going to get financial market implications of that via sterling, via government bond yields, and all those usual channels. So he really, really doesn't want that because he's seen what happens next if you do provoke the markets. So he doesn't want to follow Liz Truss in that regard. But if he then does this deal with the European Union and makes a compromise, which is what is required for a deal to be done, any deal requires compromise, and the European Union is clearly signaling that it stands ready to compromise if Sunak is. That's the way these things happen. Guess who's going to come for him? Is crocodiles, the ERG. And yes. so I don't know how he squares that circle. So, so he's got he's caught between a rock and a hard place, Scylla and Charybdis, all those cliches. And how he resolves that will tell us a lot about the strength and size and position of his backbone. Okay, Chris, we're very grateful to you for joining us to talk about the country you live in. Mostly. And uh, thanks very much indeed. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Not at all. Okay. We're very grateful to Chris Jones, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.